Good morning, everyone. Go ahead and open your Bibles or your Bible app to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. We're continuing our summer series on prayer. And today, by the help of God and His Word, we're going to see how the Word of God ties directly into our prayer life. Daniel chapter 9. We're going to take a look at the first 19 verses. So in in a minute, we're going to read a little bit. I'm going to preach, and I'm going to read a little bit more, and then I'll continue preaching. Um, We're going to drop right in on on Daniel in chapter 9 here. And and at this point in his life, he's been in exile for about 66 years. He's a famous prayer warrior, no? I mean, the guy did risk his life to pray openly, publicly, boldly. I think there's a lot we can learn from Daniel's testimony and his dedication to prayer. And, and what we're going to see here is that because he was so confident in the Word of God, he was able to be bold in his prayer. And, and the truth of God's Word fueled the intensity and fervency and frequency of his prayer life. That's what we're going to look at this morning. I'm going to ask us to pray one more time because I just feel like I need some extra help. Father God, please have your will be done today. Holy Spirit, would you protect me and hide me behind the cross? May you get all of the glory and the credit for anything remarkable that's done here today. Father God, would you please guide and direct our thoughts to how we can use what we are about to learn from your word in our own prayer life. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever watched a movie more than once, maybe three or four or five times, and then on that fifth time, oh my goodness, a light bulb goes off and you see something for the very first time? Maybe the foreshadowing in Act 1 dawns on you, even though you missed it the first five times. Maybe the climax is all the more poignant, all the more gut-wrenching because the subplot connected dots you didn't even know existed. I think sometimes reading the Bible can be like that. You've read Daniel before. You've probably heard sermons on Daniel chapter 9 before. And if you think about the inner monologue you have with yourself when you're doing your daily devotions, and you're doing your daily devotions, I trust, when we're in the Word of God and we're reading, it sounds a lot like this in our head. Oh, okay, yep, uh uh-huh, yep. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. I I got to, I should probably write that one down. And that's what it sounds like to acquire knowledge. We're taking theological stuff, intellectual stuff, and we're putting it up on a shelf. But what good is it if it stays there? If we just keep the stuff on the shelf and it never gets any worse for wear because it never leaves the shelf, what good is it for any of us? You know, if we're thinking about the Word of God in prayer, there's hundreds of places we could look at. And some preachers probably would have tried to look at 100 this morning on the topic of the Word of God in prayer, but we're not going to do that. We're going to hunker down and take a look at one prayer by one guy in one passage of Scripture. And we're going to see two things. We're going to see two things. What we're going to see is that Daniel was an uncompromising, bold, and faithful man who was not at all persuaded by the world. And we see that when the Word of God informs his prayer. The Word of God informs his prayer. 
And then we're also going to see that when Daniel's praying, the word of God is the substance of his prayer. So my goal for this sermon, you want to know like what's the end point, Pastor Jason, what's this all about? I believe with all of my heart that if we take a look at Daniel's prayer in chapter 9, that we can learn how to better leverage the book in our prayer life and that we'll all be better off for it. So Daniel chapter 9 verses 1 through 6. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, and by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Daniel's prayer, it's quite clear, was informed by the word of God because he is so intimately familiar with the scriptures of his day. He tells us that he perceived in the books. So while he is in exile, right, he's been hauled off captive to a foreign land, somehow the Jews have collected some scrolls. They've got the Torah. They've got some histories. They've got the law. They've got some writings. They've got some prophets. And and what we're supposed to understand here is that he's been reading the word of God. He's studying the Word of God. He's hiding the Word of God in his heart. And as he comes across a passage, and and most scholars believe he was reading Jeremiah 25, verse 11 and 12, and Jeremiah 29, 10. Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12 says this, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then, after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And then in Jeremiah 29.10, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Bless you. If anyone else would have written a prophecy like that, Daniel would have just pitched it aside. But when God writes something, and you know that God is the authoritative author of the scriptures, when you know that his word carries weight, significant impact on your life must happen. Daniel understands who the real author is, and he understands that God is speaking directly to this situation, that God is in control, that God is the one that allowed or caused all of this to happen. He's remembering Deuteronomy 28, the blessings and the curses. He's not at all for a minute thinking that he's a victim here. He understands God is the one orchestrating all of this. And Daniel knew that no matter which wave of captivity you started counting at, the 70 years is almost up. The shot clock is ticking down. It's time to pack your bags. It's coming. 
It's coming, man, it's coming quickly. This marvelous discovery. Can you imagine being in captivity? And maybe you've heard it before, but it didn't really hit you the same way. So maybe Daniel had an experience like us. Oh, uh-huh, uh-huh, that's good. And then it clicks and it dawns on him. Oh my goodness. So it's doing some math, maybe uses his fingers and he's like, hey, 70 years is almost up. God's in control. He's coming to get us. How could this not cause him to pray? And that's exactly what he does. He understood God's word. He understood who God was and that caused him to pray. An intimate familiarity and correct understanding of God's word keeps us from praying foolish things and expecting God to do things he never promised to do. Raise up a child in the way that he should go and he shall not depart from it. How many parents are angry at God because that verse didn't play out in their life? That is not a promise that God says will happen in every single situation or circumstance. That is a general principle, and that's typically the way life works. But there are parents possibly in this room who have prayed for decades for their lost kids. And by the grace of God, they're not angry at God because they understand the word properly. They understand the goodness of God and that his timing is not always our timing. We got to be biblically literate, and Daniel was. He understood the word of God, and that's what inspired and informed his prayer. It also changed his posture to prayer. You see, Daniel's approach to God, as we read here in Daniel 9, is marked by the things he learned from the word of God. His heart longed for restoration, for the day when Israel would be cleansed from their sin. So he cried out to God with pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And on our modern 21st century ears, this sounds so ridiculous. Why is this guy throwing dirt on his head, hopping into a potato sack? I don't get it. Unless you have a church history background, unless you've spent some time in a good Sunday school class, you have no idea what he's talking about here. When your friends are possibly reading the Bible, when you're having a conversation with them, they're going to ask you about this. Why? Why is he throwing dirt on his head? I don't understand. But apparently Daniel had a pretty good idea of Old Testament history. He understood that in 2 Kings 19.2 or Isaiah 37.1 or Lamentations 2.10, that these are outward signs of godly repentance and sorrow. It's one thing to say, I'm super sorry, God. I'm so sorry. Please, I won't do it again. Please forgive me. It's another thing to humble yourself publicly and show by your actions just how much you mean what you're praying. To take off the vestiges of any earthly treasure, of any power you might have in this world, and to put on a potato sack and throw dirt on your head. That's how you know he means business. Somewhere in Daniel's timeline, he was instructed by the word of God about this, and it changed the way he approached God in prayer. I'm not at all asking you to throw dirt on your head or throw on a burlap sack, but I am asking for your outwardly actions to be in line with what you're praying. That might mean deleting an app off your phone. That might mean getting an accountability partner. That might mean putting your money where your mouth is. That might mean praying for your pastor. That might mean asking for forgiveness. That might mean getting a different job. That might mean breaking off a relationship you shouldn't be in. That might mean fill in the blank. Our outwardly actions must, according to the word of God, line up with what we're praying. 
If you look at Daniel's prayer, you're going to see that most of this is confession. He doesn't start off saying, hey, God, good morning. Um, please forgive me for my sins. And now here's all the stuff I want. He's not talking to Santa Claus. He's, he's not writing grandma a letter about what he wants for his birthday. He's talking to the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And the word of God is directly responsible for how he approaches God. And so he's confessing. And he's not just confessing on his own behalf. He uses a lot of we language, meaning us, all of us, the people of God. We're the ones that are guilty. And throughout the prayer, we can see how much Daniel does, in fact, understand who God is because he knows who God has revealed himself to be in his word. There are two different gods in most of our minds. There's the God that we want in our head, the one who's okay with some of the things we do, the God who gives us a pass way more often than you really think you should. And then there's the God of the Bible, the one who says, turn and repent, the one who says, seek forgiveness, the one who says, this is the way. So when Daniel describes the Lord as the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who keep his commandments, we must understand that these are theological truths that shape his prayer life. The word of God directly molding how he's approaching prayer. Do you believe God is who he says he is? Because who we believe God is directly impacts how you approach him. Uh, one, one year, when I was younger, about 30 years ago, um, my cousins, who I didn't know really well from Missouri, uh, deep, deep south Missouri in the Ozarks, uh, they came up to live with us for the summer. And, uh, and I knew, and I kind of heard some stories in the family, you know, they've, they've got a hard life, you know, life's a little bit different for them, a little bit more challenging than maybe I was used to. And, uh, and so we're bunch of little kids, you know, we're between the ages of 7 and 11, and we had a brilliant idea. Kids in this room, this is not a good idea, all right? Not a good idea. But we had the brilliant idea uh, of robbing the local party store down the road. We wanted candy bars, didn't have money, so we took them. But, you know, we were so intelligent, we forgot to hide the evidence, let alone wash our face. Um, as you can imagine, mom was not happy. So yes, we were, we were dealt with then and there. And if you grew up in my generation, then you know we also got the, you think you're in trouble now? You just wait till your dad gets home. Oh my goodness, as if it weren't bad enough. Because <laughs> the last thing my dad needs after a 14-hour day is to deal with me, a knucklehead. I don't really remember all that happened the rest of that day. I was most likely sequestered in solitary confinement in my room. I probably had my Ninja Turtles taken away. Oh, come on. And my comic books, there goes X-Men, I'm gone. I, I, I probably just sat there. And my cousins had different rooms. My dad pulled into the driveway, and I was dealt with. And then he went to go find my cousins. And we couldn't find my oldest cousin. Because he opened up a window and ran. Found him in a neighbor's tree, and he was sobbing. Do you know why? Because the father figure in his life was a lot different than mine. See, I knew that my dad loved me. I knew that no matter how much I messed up, it was going to be okay. Because I was his child. Yeah, he's going to light me up. Oh yeah, you better believe it. Couldn't sit for a week, I'm sure. Dad loved me. And as faulty and 
fallible as he was and still is to this day, my dad loved me. And he disciplined me the best he could. My cousin's father figure was uniquely cruel and consistently changed the rules and was always looking for an opportunity to rightly hit him upside the head with whatever was in arm's reach. The nightmares my cousin had to live through are unspeakable. This is a memory I haven't had for 30-some-odd years, but the Holy Spirit laid it on my heart because I realized when we're praying to our Father God, like Pastor Jay talked to us about two weeks ago, who we believe Dad is changes how we pray and how we go to God. Why did my cousin run? What else was he going to do? He doesn't know any better. How did you save your skin? How do you save your own neck? Except for to run and hide, get ready to fight. You can't just sit there and wait for it to happen. So which idea of Father God do you have in your brain? Is your Father God always looking for a way to throw you under the bus and inflict pain on you and torque the screws to you and make you feel like you're this big? Or does your Father God line up with the Word of God where he says, I am a loving Father and I'm waiting with arms wide open for my son to come home. I just want my boy. I just want him to come home. I just want my son home and safe. I want to give him the ring. I want to give him the coat. I want to celebrate that he's home. Daniel went to his father, God, who had exiled an entire nation. And it's 66 years in. And the day is coming in the distance when it's going to be over. But there are still several years he's got to endure. And he knows his father God is good. He knows his father God is in control. And so he prays. He asks God to come. Do your will in my life. We messed up. We deserve it. I get it. Come. Rescue us. Daniel says that God is great and awesome and keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. After 66 years of time out and being grounded, that's a very strong statement. We can't just read that and think, oh, well, of course he does. God said so. 66 years in time out, God is good. He keeps covenant. Part of that covenant was when you do bad, I'm going to light you up. And when you collectively repent and you're finished with the punishment, I'm going to take you. I'm going to rescue you. How did Daniel know who God was? If not for the word of God, where God the Father reveals himself to us and he says, this is who I am. Creator, King, Almighty, the great I am. If God isn't who he says he is, what is the point of any of this? Like, seriously, why are we even here this morning if God isn't who he says he is? There's no point of any of this. Daniel knew that God presented blessings and curses to Israel. He believed in his heart of hearts that God was good. He believed the truths of Scripture. And if we would do likewise, oh, that we would do likewise. Listen, some of y'all are hurting today. You're going through something. I don't know what it is, but God does. You're here despite 
everything else. If only we would remember, even on our darkest time, that God is good, that he is the good God who keeps covenant, we will be able to pray with a hope that this world could only hope for. We would pray with such a power and fervency. And if we don't, if we don't rightly understand who God is, then we forfeit joy. We forfeit a victorious Christian life. Knowing and trusting in the sovereignty and goodness of God should inform and transform the way we pray. We do not pray as victims. We don't pray as if we're trying to convince some court-appointed attorney to give us a plea bargain. We don't pray as if we're having magical words and a special incantation that we have to recite so that we can say abracadabra and poof, something happens. No, we pray as if we have the ear of the king, who, by the way, just so happens to be dad and loves us and wants good things for us, someone who has promised not to withhold good things from us, but instead wants the very best things for his children. We pray to a good God when we ask for mercy. We pray to the single most profound and powerful authority figure in the entire universe, a God who is so far bigger than all of our earthly problems. That should give us power when we pray because we know to whom we pray because of the good book. God has the power and authority to actually evoke change. We know this because he tells us. So how do we let the word of God shape our prayer? And listen, this isn't a surprise. You guys know where this is going. Read your Bible. Yeah, it's not rocket science. There's no special algorithm that's only given to pastors. There's nothing special in seminary for how to have a good prayer life. We read the good book. We read God's word. And you're thinking, yep, no, I hear that. I, I know I should. And I know you should too. I know that I should do more. But how do, we, how do we do this? How do we actually put this into practice? Because for the past eight years, some of you have started on January 1. I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. Or maybe I'm going to read through the Bible in two years. And for the past eight years, you haven't made it out of the book of Leviticus. And even this morning, you're walking around with guilt and shame. This isn't funny. This is real. Some of you have that, built, that burden and that guilt and that shame that I've tried and I've failed eight years in a row. I mean, if I'm consistent in anything, it's trying and failing. And yet we know that we need to do more. We need to be in the Word of God. Well, if that's you, just know you're in good company. You're in very good company. But now is the time to unburden yourself from that guilt and shame and instead pick up the book. Pick up the book. Whatever you do, you got to start somewhere. So, here's what I suggest. Two things. Number one, don't just read when you feel like it, and don't go it alone. Don't just read when you feel like it, and don't go it alone. You've heard the expression, what gets scheduled gets done. Maybe I'm way too type A for some of you, and I apologize in advance, but for me, what gets put on the calendar gets done. My kids might say, well, most of the time, Dad, most of the time. That's why it gets put back up there with a star the next time. If we want to be consistent in our, word of, in our Word of God reading, we need to figure out what rhythms make sense for us. Maybe you're an early riser. Maybe you're a night owl. Maybe you're a lunch break reader. Whatever it is, do it. 
please, for your soul, for my sake, for the sake of the health of this church, read the word when it makes sense for you. And if you're not a strong reader, that's fine. The Bible on your phone will read itself to you. You don't like that guy's voice, that's fine. $7.99, get a premium app. It will give you a different voice and background music. Read the word. Read the word. Listen to the word. Pray the word. Sing the word. Get the word in your soul. And then don't go it alone. Ask God to join you in your Bible reading. I know that seems weird, but it's okay. I cannot tell you how many times I've done this personally, or your pastors and deacons have done this personally, especially in Leviticus. Are you sure about this? I mean, I'm, I'm really trying. I mean, I've got a study Bible here. I've got my Bible, uh, the other one over here. I've got the app here. I've got a commentary, and I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. I, I don't. I don't get it. And yes, this is a little exaggerated, but how many of us reading through an ancient scripture textbook, right? An ancient literature book, and we're reading something and it doesn't make sense. Don't suffer in silence. Invite God into your quiet time and say, God, I don't get it. Why are you telling Abraham to kill his promised son? I don't get it. This doesn't make sense. This is gross. What are you doing here? Ask God to help you and I promise he will. He will not let you down. So that's how we let the Word of God shape our prayer. We, we actually read the Bible so that it can. And we're not going to do it whenever we feel like it, and we're not going to do it on our own. We're going to do it in a rhythm that makes sense for us, and we're going to do it with God's help. That's going to help us see the big picture. Now, in the next section, we've got verses 17 through 19. I'm going to read through that quickly, and then I'll pick up some more preaching again. But as I read this, I want you to listen for something very closely, please. Verses 17 through 19. Look at how many times Daniel has a comparison between us and our and him, your, his. Verse 7. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord, our God, belong mercy and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. 11. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heavens, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning aside from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity 
and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake. O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. No, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and that the, the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because of your city and your people are called by your name. True prayer, according to the word of God, consists with two things. Agreeing with God about who he says he is. You catch that? True prayer, two things, according to the Bible. Agreeing with God about who he says he is and agreeing with God about who he says you are, who he says we are. Daniel lists a rap sheet half a mile long on the nation of Israel and a list that's equally long about how good and godly God is, how faithful God is. Daniel's prayer of confession mentions a righteous God, treachery and sin of the people, the law of Moses and God's mercy. And that sounds a lot like our life. We've got the law of God in our life. We struggle to obey. We need God's mercy. We're in a very similar situation, spiritually speaking. We're not perfect and we need help. We need to cry out for God. But for Daniel, though, he's living in a time of exile and to trust in a sovereign God, his plan and his purpose and his timing, he was compelled to believe that what he knew of God from the word of God to be true. He banked on it. He counted on it. He held it with the utmost assurity that this is what will come to pass because my God said so. Daniel also knew that God's glory and name was the highest importance to him. I don't know if you caught that in that last passage. He's not asking for God to help them so that they could have a better life. He's not asking God to rescue them because life's really hard and they just can't take it anymore, and they're going to perish without him. He says, God, for your name's sake, for your fame and your glory, for, for the city which is yours, and everyone knows it's yours. It's a byword, meaning everybody knows when you mention Jerusalem, it's just to show a message about their God, what he's done, what he's capable of. And right now, it's not looking so good. This is important for us as believers our prayer should have the substance of Scripture in it. So when we're praying, we can pray for right things. Most of us have experienced a time when we don't really know what to pray for. Even when we're truly on our knees because somebody's in the hospital, right? Like life is hanging on by a thread. We approach the throne and 
come on, what am I supposed to say here? I mean, you're a sovereign God. You're going to do whatever you want anyway. Like, what's, what's the big deal? I don't, what part do I play in all of this? And a lot of us get paralyzed. We don't know what to say. What if we just started praying God's word, things he's already promised to us? That's what Daniel did. God, you said 70 years, it's almost up. Shot clock's ticking down. You're coming to get us. We sinned. We deserve it. I got it. That's good. Rescue us. Come, Jesus. Come. Come, Lord. Rescue us. Save us. He's praying the promises of God based off of what he learned from Scripture. So, for example, if you're not a Christian this morning, or you know someone who is not a Christian, did you know that right now in this very instant you can pray and cry out to God and he will forgive you for everything you've ever done wrong? He will forgive you because of his son's cross where he shed his innocent blood on the cross. Jesus paid the penalty for your sin and mine. And if we were to cry out to him now, he will save you. Amen. We can pray for our loved ones that this would happen today. And we can rest assured that because he, he, he paved the way, he purchased our salvation, it's not on us. So we know that we didn't earn our salvation, which means we can't lose our salvation. And that is a really good thought. Because I've had some bad days, and so have you, where I've confronted my own salvation and thought, man, if this were on me, it's not looking so good. But God, he's the one who made this possible. And we know that he will continue to work on us and make us a better image and reflection of Jesus Christ because in Philippians 1.6, God promised to complete the good work he began in us. So when we're going through the dark night of the soul on our worst moment, when the pain and the stress and the intensity of life is buckling down on you and you're about to snap, we know that God is still at work. We are guaranteed by the work of Jesus Christ that our heavenly future is secure. And this present moment, these momentary afflictions, as hard and real as they are, they are just that, momentary. And our heavenly reward awaits us. But to say, well, hey, pastor, you know, I'm, I'm too stressed to be blessed. No, no, I didn't say that backwards. I'm too stressed to be blessed. You don't know what's going on. I am too stressed to be blessed. I don't, I don't feel, I really, really wish that I could feel better about my future. We'll look no further than John chapter 14, verse 27. John 14, 27, God promised to give us a peace that transcends the peace given by the world. And when God's talking about peace, he's talking about the absence of anger, the absence of rage, the absence of war. He's referring to safety and security. And that sounds nice, doesn't it? Because even on our good days as a Christian, we're still never fully at peace in this world because the world hates us. Because we still wrestle with the flesh and we sin and we bring disgrace and dishonor upon the name of Jesus. Because this world persecutes Christians. So we're not going to fully, truly experience the peace that Jesus offers this side of glory. But because of the Messiah, he will give us peace in that last day. We will get to experience that when we're in heaven. So if we find ourselves losing our head when we find ourselves falling more and more into confusion and anger and rage and, and just being in a funk that we just can't really explain, we need to remind ourselves of the gospel, that a peace has been won for us by the shedding of innocent blood so that we could be at peace with God. And if we are at peace with God, truly everything else starts to take its more proper place. 
Yeah, I get it. Work is crazy. The neighbor's crazy. Marital conflict, kid conflict. I get it. It is crazy. It is real. It hurts. But if you're at peace with God, everything else can truly take its place in the back seat. That's not to say it's not important. But ultimately, it is not the most important thing. And you say, brother, that sounds nice. I really wish I could feel God's presence because I get scared sometimes. Scared about my health, scared about my kids, scared about my job, scared about how many bills I have. Mm-hmm. Me too. Me too. Psalm 23 is my comfort. The Lord has promised to be our shepherd and walk us through the valley of the shadow of death. The shepherd is not cruel. He doesn't lead us out to the desert just to watch us die. He doesn't intentionally take us through rocky paths where it's a little challenging, a little more tricky to maneuver. He doesn't cross choppy waters just for the fun of it to see how we're going to freak out. He is with us and he's taking us somewhere that is good for us. We've got to trust him in the journey. And they say, well, but Jason, I, I still don't get it. It's hard to smile. Like life is just too hard. I just can't even lately. I just, I, I've got so much going on. I, I'm scared. I, I'm in pain. My relationships are fractured. My finances are upside down. My mental health is crumbling. It's in shambles. Like Hiroshima, boom, it's gone. I have no sanity left. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. We're getting ready to wrap this up. God has promised to bring a new heaven and a new earth. And I get that seems like an eternity from now. How do you think Daniel felt? 66 years in captivity, in exile. I think the 70 years probably seemed like a long time too. Even if it was just like four or five left, it seems like it's forever. But I promise it's not a death sentence. We live in this time, and we talked about this a little bit in Sunday school. We live in that moment, a unique moment in history. We call it the already and yet not yet, the already and the not yet. In Christ, the inheritance and the future is secure. It's ours, bought and paid for, signed on the dotted line, sealed in blood. It's ours, guaranteed. Take it to the bank. And yet, it's not fully realized in our reality. We haven't experienced everything that is already secured for us, everything that's guaranteed. So we can pray with that positive assurance that it will come. The new heaven and the new earth, all the tears wiped away, no more pain. And we can sing, holy, holy, holy. And we can worship Jesus face to face in his presence. It's going to be amazing. And so for that reason, even when life is really, really crummy, we can pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. And we can ask that he will take us to the city of God. Augustine, in his book titled The City of God, writes this. He said, What grace is meant to do is to help good people, not to escape their sufferings, but to bear them with a stout heart and with a fortitude that finds its strength in grace. That's what we need. According to Daniel chapter 9, the word of God tells us two things about prayer. That the word of God should inform our prayer so we can pray right things. And that the word of God is the substance of our prayer. You want God to say yes more frequently to your prayers? Pray the things he's already promised. I know it seems like it's cheating, but it's not. He wants you to pray for his will to be done. He's already commanded us that. So how can we let the word of God be the substance of our prayer? We've got to spend time with him. We've got to spend time with him. There's a famous theologian 
named Harry Ironside. He once wrote where he was, he was visiting a man who was in his deathbed. He could barely speak above a whisper because his lungs were consumed with the disease. And, and the old man asked the, the preacher, you're trying to preach Christ, are you not? And the preacher said, yeah, I am. And he said, well, sit down a little bit and let's talk together about the Word of God. And so the, the dying man opened up his Bible and slowly turned and for many hours he unfolded verse after verse after verse and he showed him God in the scripture. And before he knew it, the preacher Ironside was bawling like a baby, tears streaming down his face and he asked the dying man, where did you get these things? Can, can you tell me where I could find these things? Like, is it in a book? Like, what college, what seminary? How can I understand this? How can I know the things that you know? And the dying man replied, my dear, dear young man, I learned these things on my knees on the mud floor of a little sod cottage in the north of Ireland. Then, with my Bible before me, opened for hours at a time, I asked the Spirit of God to reveal Christ to my soul and to open the word to my heart. And he taught me more on my knees in that little dirt floor sod cottage than all of the seminaries or colleges in the world could have ever taught me. Faith Church, that, that should be our testimony. That on our knees with the Bible open, asking the Spirit of God to show us Christ, to give us Christ, to give us more. Show us more. Let us be transformed by his book. And we can pray better. We can love better. We can live better. Not for those things in and of itself, but so that we can glorify our Savior better because our life matches his will for us. So brother and sister, let's challenge ourselves never to be content with a mediocre, half-hearted, lukewarm prayer life. Brother and sister, come on, man. We all got to be praying more than just for our dinner and when someone's in the hospital. We got to pray more than when we need to buy a house or the car's making a weird noise. We need to let the word of God fuel the intensity of our prayer. Let us commit to spend real time in the prayer. Real time in prayer. Let's have the word of God open before us as we pray and ask God to help us. And let's call upon the Holy Spirit every time to show us Christ as we read our Bible so that we can pray the word of God. Let's do that now. Father God, as the worship team makes their way up here, would you search our hearts, O Lord? Would you reveal to us our sin and where we're slipping in our fellowship with you, our time in your word and how much we're praying, how much we're praying biblical prayers instead of just a wish list half a mile long. Father God, forgive us for our sinful prayers. Forgive us for our lackadaisical approach, our nonchalance toward the word of God and to prayer, the spiritual things that you've called us to. Father God, would you give us the power to right the ship? Would you help us would you help us to know that you have forgiven us? We don't need to walk out of here with guilt and shame, but instead a newfound spring in our step that because of Jesus and his work, we are forgiven, that you will use us, that you will bless our prayers. Father God, help us to know your word so that we can pray your word. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.